0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Fyodor Urnov, is a professor of molecular therapeutics at UC Berkeley and a scientific director at its Innovative Genomics Institute, or IGI. He co-developed the toolbox of human genome and epigenome editing and led the team that developed a strategy for genome editing in the hemoglobinopathies, sickle cell disease, and beta-thalassemia that has yielded sustained clinical benefit for subjects in several ongoing clinical trials. At the IGI, Fyodor directs efforts to develop scalable CRISPR-based approaches to treat diseases of the immune system, sickle cell disease, neurodegeneration, and neuroinflammation. His recent op-ed in the New York Times describes a major goal for the field of genome editing and a key focus of Fyodor's work at the IGI, expanding access to CRISPR therapies for rare genetic diseases. So Fyodor, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I first heard of you through a New York Times op-ed piece that you wrote just a couple of months ago, December 9th, in which you talked about the medical uses of genome editing and uh, your criticism of the delays and obstacles for making gene editing available for people, with, particularly with rare diseases. So we're going to get into that a little bit later in the interview. But first, I'd like to talk to about how you became interested in genetics in the first place i understand that it was at the age of 12.
1: that's right i was i was stunned to discover uh, a few years back when i was speaking with jennifer doudna the nobel prize-winning scientist who started the innovative genomics institute uh, where i currently work and we were just talking about life paths and it turned out that both of our fathers were professors of english lit and that we both got interested in genetics after having read the same book and it's the book, um, Double Helix by Jim Watson. Today, I have to say with deep sadness, I don't know if I would recommend that a 12 year old start their familiarity with DNA by reading that book, because there is some pretty, frankly, reprehensible things that Watson says. But it's just true. I read the double helix and I frankly fell in love with the, with the beauty of the molecule. There's something so simple about it and yet so deep. Uh, it's visually, aesthetically very pleasing, and it has this ex- exquisite union of uh, form and function. So by looking at it, you kind of understand near immediately what it does and how it does it. And I remember having finished the book and also got, getting the misimpression that scientific discovery, especially in genetics, involves sitting around and doodling on pieces of paper and then looking at data from other people and coming up with novel models to interpret those data, which is with no disrespect to Watson and Crick is more or less a good chunk of what they did. And so armed with that affection, newly found affection for the beauty of DNA and a complete misconception of how scientific research works, I decided to become a geneticist. And here I am, uh, oh my goodness, uh, 42 years later, a geneticist.
0: So maybe the part you didn't understand was the level of of commitment and uh, time to to achieve any kind of breakthrough requires an awful lot of hard work and dedication and perseverance it's a good thing that I didn't know that
1: as you point out getting to a result that means something can take years getting to a state where that result resonates in the real world can take decades that timeline is not something one thinks about when one is 12 I remember as a undergraduate at Moscow State, and then when I came around to do graduate work, falling in love with a particular biological problem, which is how genes go on and off. And my interest in that stemmed from reading some introductory books and then taking undergraduate classes that describe the, you know, frankly, relatively straightforward ways in which our friends' bacteria turn genes on and off. And I thought, well, this is simple. I can study that and figure out something new. And, you know, here we are to 2023, and I have to admit that despite everyone's best efforts, our understanding of how human genes go on and off is not only murky, it's getting murkier. But that, I I suppose, is why uh, training to be a scientist takes a little bit of time. You know, you you do your undergraduate degree, which is a lot of textbooks, but then you spend six years, in my case, as a graduate student, more or less understanding what it means to do hypothesis driven research, how to ask mother nature a question, and then critically how to get an answer that's interpretable as opposed to just low quality data. And then the cycle of course repeats itself. And the, the great thing about graduate school is after a little while you achieve a, what I'm going to describe as a state of flow, uh, which is you you are so immersed in the process that paradoxically the outcome starts to matter less. Ultimately, once you uh, get your PhD and go through postdoctoral training, which in my case I I did at the National Institutes of Health, that uh, state of flow can then become sharper and get you to some discoveries. And in my case, I was incredibly fortunate to have trained with, a, a, frankly, a brilliant scientist, Alan Wolf, who inspired in me a, a lifelong passion for this mysterious, to this day, way in which our DNA gets wrapped around in various proteins. And then, you know, a meter of our DNA gets compacted into a tiny cell nucleus and how, what, how that works and what implications that has for, for gene regulation. And then of course, in a delightful twist of fate, which nobody could have predicted, this is a classic, you can do all the planning in the world, but then there is the, the sheer element of luck. Uh, my mentor, um, offered me a position at this biotech company that he in turn was offered a position at. And he said, would you like to join me? And I frankly would have joined him in an expedition to the end of the earth. And so I followed him and here I am uh, 23 years after that moment, having worked extensively in industry and now a professor at UC Berkeley, still driven by the same love for DNA, still deeply inspired by the challenges of how human genes go on and off, and ultimately having gotten quite a bit of training in understanding how you can manipulate DNA to develop uh, treatments for severe disease.
0: I think you probably would agree with this statement. I I think of gene editing as in the top three important topics in science and technology, the other two being global warming or climate change and and AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, I think that gene editing is as important as, as tremendous potential for for good and also some, some for danger. And I think of those three, it probably gets the, the least press, but I, I think it's super important. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on, on the show.
1: The simplest way to, to think about editing in the context of everything else humanity is faced with is the following. We first uh, learned that human beings follow Mendel's genetics laws. What we learned in high school about yellow peas and green peas at the beginning of the 20th century. At around that same time, physicians realized that there are human uh, medical conditions that can follow Mendel's laws. So they're they're due to mutations in single genes. And of course, your audience is very familiar with the best known ones, such as hemophilia, which is an inability to clot blood, or sickle cell disease, which is also a blood disease, but a very different one. It's an inability to make red blood cells or cystic fibrosis, which affects um, the lung and the pancreas, etc. So then, in the 1970s, so we have to move another 50 years forward in time, we uh, got several ways to read DNA. It was a painstakingly slow process. But then, after an enormous amount of work and technical innovation, we got the full genetic sequence of um, a human being actually read and i have very vivid memories because i was actually at the national institutes of health in the late 90s when all of this was you know being announced and asking myself well what's going to happen now and two things happened in an extraordinary set of technological advances that i'm comfortable comparing to the way music went from being carried on tapes and lps to being carried in an enormous volume in a small box that most of us have in our pockets. So in a similar kind of technological breakthrough, reading the entire sequence of the human genome went from taking six years and $3 billion to taking 24 hours and $100. And as a consequence of that, we have over the past five or six years, which is really when this uh, revolution in sequencing hit its stride, we have read the DNA of hundreds of thousands of our fellow human beings. And we can now identify with unprecedented speed and precision, if there is a genetic change that causes a person to have a medical condition, what exactly that change is. The way to think about that advance is a little bit by considering what's happened to astronomy. If you think back to you know to the very first astronomers pointing their primitive telescopes to the stars, then now we, we had the Hubble. And if you look at a photograph of a, of a piece of the sky that the Hubble gave us, they're beautiful galaxies and other things. I'm not an astronomer, but I just know they're visually beautiful. And of course, most recently, we have the Webb Telescope, which sees thousands and thousands and thousands more things in the same field of view that our earlier telescopes could. So this ability to sequence more and more and more and more people is a little bit like the ability to catalog more and more and more galaxies. But for genetic disease and the common disease, the goal is not to look at the stars and you know, hand-wring at the fault in our stars, if there is one, but the goal is to change those stars. And so I think the significance of the moment that gene editing has given us is we as a species, uh, for the first time, are able to fly to the stars of our fate. I know this sounds excessively poetic, but it's actually true. We scientists have built a method to alter DNA of a living human being and of a species such as the cow or the pig, which is widely used in agriculture or a crop such as wheat or rice. And we've never really had a technology like this before.
0: In preparation for for this interview, I read uh, Jennifer Doudna's book, which has the dramatic title of a crack in creation. And she, she talks in very powerful terms about humans now having the ability to control their own evolution which sounds incredibly exciting and incredibly scary. And uh, I I, I think depending on how you're using the technology, in your case, you're using it to develop medicines for genetic diseases, I think the the benefits are very clear and very profound. You uh, you gave examples in your article about the ability to potentially prevent a disease of early childhood from from killing uh, a young child before they even reach puberty, and that could be changed. And there are also, I think, scary aspects of it, too, that are not fully thought out yet. I mean, she talks about uh, one particular one, which is the possibility of changing not just the somatic genes of the somatic cells, but also the genes of the germ cells, of the reproductive cells. And that if those are changed, then any of the offspring of that person would be, those changes would be carried through and it would enter the kind of genome of the general population. And she mentioned that there was an organization to put a moratorium on that kind of intervention. And it sounds like it's been fairly successful so far, You know that uh, that moratorium seems to be holding, at least for now.
1: I think you've started a discussion on what I think is probably the most thing, important thing for you and I to speak about. What do we see as the technology footprint of CRISPR on planet Earth? And I think one way I've been thinking about this is by analogy with nuclear energy just by accident i was a uh, finishing my freshman year at moscow state when chernobyl happened and i then served in the military i was drafted with um, a whole bunch of people who um, actually were in that part of then the ussr now ukraine of course and speaking with them about the impact that it had and it just chilled me to the bone. Now fast forward 2005, uh, my older daughter and I went to France and she was young and wanted to see some castles and so we drove to the castle that uh, was the inspiration for uh, Sleeping Beauty and it's as bucolic as anything you can imagine and why am I bringing this up? You get in the car and drive away from this fairy tale like beauty, and you see a giant nuclear power plant. France is heavily reliant on nuclear energy. Neighboring Germany is not. And so, so I think technologies have complex complex impacts on the world. It comes down to how we humans tune the dial of applying it for what we perceive as a societal good and limiting threats from what we perceive as a societal bad. And the, the National Academies and uh, Royal Society uh, Summit on gene, on gene editing, both somatic and this so-called germline, one of which is happening in London in early March, and I'll be speaking there, I think is a really good example of how the scientific uh, medical public policy and um, ethics and patient communities are approaching this. So we, we are starting with what CRISPR is doing today and what it has to continue to do, which is treat devastating disease and in individuals who already have it. So there's we're not modifying future generations. There are no designer babies. There is no germline anything. We are taking people who are suffering from severe illness and attempting to use CRISPR to help them. And what, what's happened in the last three years is a pretty remarkable set of clinical trial data that really demonstrates the, the extraordinary potential of CRISPR to alleviate human suffering. This is, I want to emphasize this, we're not at gene editing future generations, we're taking people alive today in the United States, in Europe, in New Zealand, and we're using CRISPR in China And we're using CRISPR to protect them from the devastating effects of, let's say, sickle cell disease, or degenerative disease, or cancer. Now, is the technology of CRISPR that I just described as having this wonderful, inspiring effect on public health, fundamentally the same technology that you could use to genetically engineer subsequent generations? Yes much like the fundamental physics that underlies a safe nuclear power plant are the same as the physics that underlie an unsafe nuclear power plant. And I think we as a species owe it to ourselves to not repeat history, but learn from it and set clear boundaries on where we today believe the ethical, and relevant, and appropriate applications of CRISPR gene editing are, and then declare a certain set of other applications to be worthy of exploration but to be premature, and then finally to declare yet an additional set of applications of CRISPR to be at present beyond the pale. Do I have strong hope that we will do everything right in this process? Um, I think it's pretty certain we will not get everything right but i do see and am encouraged by the vigorous amount of forward-looking attention that my field of crispr has received from the global community so people understand and exactly as you say that this is a remarkable moment of a a unique technology that we can safely place in one of the most impactful ones that we have as, as a species and this vigorous dialogue across all facets of its deployment, and we haven't yet spoken about agriculture, for example, where, again, I think, frankly, CRISPR, CRISPR is likely to make a bigger impact on our planet, a beneficial impact via ag, rather than, you know, frankly, near-term public health because of just the way agriculture is practiced versus uh, um, the administration of treatments. But this vigorous attention and this vibrant debate, I think the thing it did, and I think that's a very constructive thing, Is it made, created a state of broad awareness that this is what we have and these are the issues that we have to resolve?
0: Yeah, it's really an amazing accomplishment if it holds for scientists all over the world to actually talk to each other, cooperate with each other, come up with standards together, a a real international agreement, which is not often uh, accomplished by politicians as well. Uh, so hopefully, you know, the scientists will be able to be more, uh, both more reasonable, but also more willing to to cooperate toward a common standard. Yeah. I, and I thought before we go on, I, I think it might be helpful to talk about some of these other applications just to get the, the our audience a sense of what's possible. So like starting with with the good stuff, you know, as you say, the agriculture, I can give you a, a short list that you can maybe expand upon uh, tomatoes that can sit in the pantry slowly ripening for months without rotting plants that can better weather climate change, mosquitoes that are unable to transmit malaria, ultra muscular dogs that can make fearsome partners for police and soldiers, cows that no longer grow horns, higher yielding crops, healthier livestock, more nutritious foods, chickens that only produce females for egg laying so that the male chicks don't have to be culled, Uh, Cows that only produce males for beef because they make for more meat. I mean, this is if you're a meat eater, I suppose. Uh, Pigs that produce organs made of human cells for the purpose of transplants and on and on. on. These aren't necessarily all positive, but it, it speaks to the just amazing, amazing potential of the technology.
1: Even though I've been doing gene editing for 20 years, I'm listening to you speak and I myself am awed. My inner reaction is, wow, we really can do all of that. Amazing. I'm really glad you brought this up in the frame that you did. When you put that list together and read it the way you did, you almost have to say to yourself, we owe it to the planet to prioritize. And to me, while I've spent my entire professional life over the past 20 years pointing CRISPR at the uh, gene editing and then most recently CRISPR at the problem of uh, addressing urgent public health challenges. I think climate change is probably the biggest one. And I should also really point out that the Innovative Genomics Institute where I work has taken some major steps towards really realizing the the promise of CRISPR in that regard. And I think there, the, the, the things that are front and center for us as a field, and I think for the planet are, understanding how we're going to feed a growing planet under conditions of unprecedented climate instability. CRISPR is an extraordinarily well-suited tool to address that challenge at the level of crops. And this is because there are 200 years worth of data starting with pretty much the first proper scientific experiments on plant hybridization, that genetic diversity that occurs in wild plants and crops as well, allows them the flexibility to tolerate a broad range of extremes. The critical challenge is that when you look at the wonderfulness, to quote Darwin, endless forms most beautiful, that evolution has given us in terms of the kinds of things plants can do. Think of the plants that survive unprecedented heat. Think of plants that survive extended periods of drought. And on the other hand, think of plants that thrive under water, and so on and so on, right? Like you can go on and on and on. And then critically to the point of yield, think of the fact that some plants grow much faster than others under various conditions, et cetera. So the problem in terms of moving that towards agriculture is that you know we as a species consume relatively few mainstream crops, right? 50% of humanity gives its 50% of its daily calories from rice. And then we talk about wheat, maize, cassava, and so on and so on. As you, as you think about the major sources of dietary starch, There aren't that many. And when we talk about vegetables, yet again, we are stuck with a relatively small list. And in turn, the varieties that are grown globally for planetary scale production are not exactly freshly domesticated from, you know, the garden of Mother Nature. So, the unique promise of CRISPR is in being able to very rapidly take a variety of, let's say, rice that is really well adapted to being grown at large scale and endow that variety of rice with a natural trait that has something to do with um, climate change. So, for example, resist greater resistance to drought or, for example, a greater ability to grow when flooded for extended periods of time. And where is that? How are we going to do
0: that endowing? And also ability to repel t- uh, pests, you know, insects.
1: Absolutely. And a, a, real, a really good example are citrus fruits or, for example, the banana or cacao, frankly. Cacao is, is a, you know, we, we think about it as, as chocolate. And it is, of course, uh, it's a major agricultural crop and a major source of farmers' subsistence around the world when parts of, area, parts of the world where it's grown. So the way you approach this problem of endowing crops with climate change facing traits is you mind the diversity of mother nature. You look at wild varieties and say, oh wow, look at, this. look at this wild variety of rice. It happens to have this tiny genetic change that leads it to respond to drought very differently than the domesticated variety. So CRISPR allows you a first ever, we've never had this ability, capability to do if you think about a word processor to use a molecular cursor of your mouse to highlight the tiny snippet of genetic text that occurs in a natural rice variety, then take a commercial rice variety, click on its DNA, and transfer precisely just that tiny snippet from the wild variety to the agriculturally scalable one. Similarly, you brought up the example of hornless cows. Quite literally, that phenomenon at the molecular level plays out when you do something like that. How do you take a variety of cows that normally has horns and politely rid them of those horns genetically? You don't need to invent anything. You just need to ask mother nature where the nearest hornless cow is. Then you read the, read the DNA and you go, aha, there's the hornlessness. And now you take a breed of cows that's widely used for a particular kind of agriculture and you use CRISPR to give that, that, that cow breed that, that ability.
0: Right. So in a way, it, it's not doing something different from what's been done before with um, breeding of new varieties of animals or plants, but it's being able to do it much more, much more efficiently. I mean, I, I read that in the 1940s, there was uh, scientists would irradiate crops and and hoping to create random mutations, some of which might be useful. And that's, you know, the, that's the opposite kind of uh, technology, where it's, it's just very uh, cumbersome and and random, whereas this is targeted.
1: So I I have to admit that you've just um, uh, brought up one of my favorite examples of the positive change that CRISPR can provide to the world. Following the disaster of World War II and the horrors we experienced, which was actually preceded by a Nobel Prize winning discovery that x-rays can cause accelerated genetic change. Agronomists and agriculturists the world over started to develop new varieties of commercially and agriculturally relevant uh, fruits, vegetables, and cereal crops that would have desired characteristics, let's say yield or taste, by essentially taking uh, the the molecular equivalent of a machine gun, uh, shooting molecular bullets. The, The analogy is quite apt into the nucleus of all of these species, whether uh, fruit a fruit vegetable or crop, uh, cereal, and then selecting the rare lucky mutant, which may have had its genome completely rearranged, but guess what, it's tastier. And so the, the profound truth is that when any member of your audience is goes to their local organic supermarket and selects the most organic something possible that comes from a local farm, beautifully grown by, on a multi-generation family who has grown that crop and then buys that thing and takes that home thinking this is the most natural thing ever. Well, I'm sorry to say that there's quite likely that that variety was made by radiation bombing, frankly, of that crop you know in the late 40s early 50s because that was the only way we could make something like this with crispr you don't need to bomb
0: anything and one of the advantages of of not having to bomb anything is that you can make the precise precise change that you need without also at the same time creating other changes that may be less desirable so you know when you do the radiation bombing you you, you might wind up with something good but what what about all the other genes <laughs> that it may have affected too and it's it's so so much sloppier
1: that that's exactly right. We can improve with extraordinary precision. Now, I think that we have to be mindful that when you make a change of this type, it's imperative that studies, extensive studies be performed, that you haven't accidentally done something untoward, or that from an ecological perspective, you haven't made A change that might have some unintended consequence. But the good news is we have ways to do those studies and it's frankly a high class problem. Um, I'll give you one amazing example and it's probably one of my favorite in the CRISPR space. Yes, hornless cow, amazing. So I'm going to share with you a word that I strongly suspect 90% of your audience has never heard of and the word is forkability. Forkability is a technical term that describes the ease with which a particular kind of lettuce or uh, leafy green can be impaled on a fork. For example, butter lettuce has high forkability, spinach has low forkability. Why am I talking about this? Because it turns out that people will more readily eat things that have high forkability than low. Um, And a great example comes from the fact that there are, of course, no baby carrots. What we buy and eat as baby carrots are carrots that have been uh, made to look like baby carrots. <clears throat> but however entertaining may this be, if you look at the rate of consumption of carrots by the public after the introduction of the baby carrot, it's kind of extraordinary. So what does that say? People will make uh, better choices with respect to the food they eat if that food is more accessible. So there's a company that uh, is called Pearwise. It's um, done an extraordinary job of identifying a family of um, leafy greens that have exceptionally high nutritional content at every level, which, frankly, most varieties of lettuce do not, and used a next-generation form of CRISPR to endow it with higher forkability. Separately, we all familiar you with know, the concept of mustard greens and all of these wonderful leafy things that we would eat more of, but they're slightly bitter. <clears throat> so that's actually not an accident. Mother Nature evolved that trait. because. Mother Nature doesn't want its um, plants to be eaten, so that slight bitterness is to prevent grazing animals from eating it. So scientists at Pearwise have gotten rid of that bitterness. So here you have a healthy leafy green that has been crispered to be less bitter and have high forkability. And um, they're actually, I think, about to to, to start uh, marketing these um, uh, with the explicit disclaimer that this is not exactly your grandmother's lettuce. So as I describe all this, again i'm very mindful about the fact that people will look at any anything they eat um, having gone through a lab with some amount of caution the the level of caution will vary from person to person and my hope frankly is this at the end of the day we want to lead happier healthier lives and a life of goodness and if there are crispr crops that do not adversely affect the ecosystem that do not unduly favor approaches to agriculture that are destructive, that have been proven to have not only no negative effect on health, but in fact are good for you. I mean, I'm hopeful that there will be a fraction of the population that will look at all of this and say, yeah, I, I'd, like to, I'd like myself some higher forkability, low bitterness, extremely delicious, nutritious uh, leafy
0: green." Yeah, so I, I think there's going to be a future battle, n- not necessarily waged by scientists, but by food manufacturers to not label CRISPR-modified organisms as GMO, as, as genetically modified in some way, that there'll be an exception in some way. Um, maybe GMO will be defined as borrowing genes from another species, and that's GMO. But if it's the same species, and it's just tweaking a gene here or there, then it's not GMO. I mean, it's it's going to be a kind of semantic in a way. But there is, I think, an awful lot of resistance, I think even more in Europe than in the United States, against modified crops. And as you say, it may become just absolutely necessary to weather climate change. I mean,
1: we don't know how good we are as a species in terms of mindfully using technology to constructively avert imminent negative events. But I can tell you that in India, where there are many farmers who support their families, the rate of suicide among these whole farmers has been devastating. We're not talking about one or two. We're talking about tens of thousands. And they're committing suicide because they no longer have access to crops that can be grown under conditions of climate change where they can't feed their families anymore. So the reason I bring this up is I'm hopeful that we will have specific use case scenarios where we have to rely on CRISPR technology. And I am hopeful about this for an example that's actually relatively recent, but comes before the age of CRISPR and comes from a genetically modified transgenic organisms. So in Hawaii, there is a great tradition of growing papaya and it's delicious. And it got attacked by a pathogen. And the pathogen was spread so quickly, it more or less started to decimate the entirety of the Hawaiian industry for growing papaya. And so threatening the livelihood of a large number of folks who have been doing this for generations. So um, scientists in academia actually, led, led by um, Dennis Gonsalves, developed a GMO papaya with the explicit goal of being resistant to that pathogen. And they showed that it really resists. And there's some remarkable footage from uh, a meeting of some governing body in Hawaii with respect to whether or not let this uh, transgenic crop into the, the beautiful, beautiful ecosystem that is Hawaii. And the debate looked as follows. So on the one hand are folks who are protesting this action because They are worried about the effects on the ecosystem. The much louder, and to me, frankly, the more cogent voice in the room is a large community of Hawaiian farmers who are saying to these folks, look, you can flood us with your hypothetical concerns all day long, but what we're telling you is is that this is the only way we can continue to grow papaya in Hawaii, and if we don't do this, our livelihoods will be decimated. Today, a formidable fraction of papaya grown in Hawaii is transgenic. Um, the ecosystem is fine, as best as I can tell. And the practical voice of real world need has successfully taken a technology from the world of such its development and used it for to implement robust, healthy, positive real world change. So I'm hopeful that for CRISPR, we will have such use case scenarios. You know, we're gonna protect the banana. We're gonna protect a rice from a particular blight and uh, make it available equitably,
0: equitably. So I think this would be a good segue to talk about uh, you know, resistance to diseases that the discovery of CRISPR was accomplished by seeing how bacteria defend themselves against viral diseases of bacteria.
1: Oh my goodness, there are so many ironies in all of this. Would you like the irony of ironies? Sure. So obviously, uh, you know, uh, insulin to treat type 1 diabetes was historically purified from pigs, from the pancreas of pigs. And then in studies actually starting in the late 1940s, this is studies in early 1950s by Sal Luria, and then culminating in some magnificent work by Ham Smith, Dan Nathans, and Werner Arbor, who uh, won the Nobel Prize for it and then Herb Boyer and uh, Stan Cohen who may put it to use, scientists discovered an amazing system in bacteria which is called restriction, and it's a technical term which your audience is is completely allowed to forget. And it's basically a way in which, one way in which bacteria defend themselves against invading pathogens. And what um, Ham Smith and Herb Boyer and uh, Stan Cohen figured out is the way restriction works is by an amazing system of enzymes called, I know boring term, restriction enzymes, where you can cut DNA in very precise ways and then put it back together again. And that was the birth in the early 1970s of the recombinant DNA revolution. The reason that insulin is, of course, never again purified from pig anything, but is instead made in giant vats where bacteria produce it is because of a discovery in the early 1970s that bacteria have a defense mechanism called restriction and that that machinery can be repurposed to put together different pieces of DNA. And the biotechnology industry, complete with its amazing medicines for cancer, for autoimmune disease, the list goes on and on and on. All of None of those medicines would be possible without recombinant DNA. So this was the early 1970s. Now fast forward to 2012, when Jennifer Doudna on the UC Berkeley campus collaborates with Emmanuelle Charpentier on this very strange bacterial defense system called CRISPR. And to be very clear, it's a very different bacterial defense system. And frankly, Jennifer was driven by curiosity. She wasn't trying to change the world, which she ended up doing. And she and Emmanuelle discover that CRISPR actually works using this astonishing molecular machine that can be repurposed for genome editing. So, there were two independent events in the history of technology where bacteria lent very graciously tools that they independently evolved, two different tools to defend themselves against invading pathogens. One begat the recombinant DNA revolution in the 1970s, and the other begat the CRISPR revolution in the 2010s.
0: You know, if I could just throw in a little tidbit here that if the bacteria take a mugshot, in a sense, of the invading virus. And it has a kind of a uh, scrapbook <laughs> of of these viruses. And, then, and by using the, this mugshot, it can recognize them and defend against it. And and the other thing that I was just amazed to to read about is that viruses that are, that infect bacteria are the most common by far form of quasi-life or life on the planet. I mean, there's just the numbers, I don't know what how many orders of magnitude, but it's an incredible thing that, you know, bacteria of course are unbelievably common everywhere. And viruses are orders of magnitude more common than bacteria. <laughs> so it's just uh, incredible that, that to take something that's so common and to use it in this way is just absolutely remarkable.
1: I agree. And the other thing to appreciate, and this is a major area of work by the Innovative Genomics Institute, in particular led by Jill Banfield, who just won the Van Loewenhoek uh, Medal for this, is uh, mining the riches of the bacterial and uh, bacteria viruses space. You know, the The mental frame I always share with my students as we think about the world comes from a a brilliant cartoon in the New Yorker by Leo Cullum. And it has a penguin that is staring with great smugness and fondness at a globe and the globe is upside down in that Antarctica is at the top. And the look on the penguin's face, the penguin goes, yeah. (laughs) And so I always remind my students that we as a species, we just look at the world around us through the prism of our biases.
0: Right, of course.
1: Pretty much our planet is inhabited by bacteria and everything else is just an afterthought. Everything else is an afterthought. The ecological diversity and the genetic diversity that is brought to this planet by tiny things that we don't think about is much greater than anything else.
0: So we don't have that much more time left, so I, I wanna make sure that we touch on the issues that you raised in that New York Times article, which is who's gonna benefit medically from this technology. And, and if, if I can couch it correctly, your concern was that the bureaucratic obstacles were so onerous and so time consuming and so expensive, uh, particularly the, the FDA regulations that it's it'll become too expensive to treat rare diseases. You know, there are many, many, you know, probably thousands of rare genetic diseases and the incentive will only be to cure the common ones. And I think you gave an example of how the FDA has streamlined their process in a different uh, arena. And that maybe it would make sense to streamline it here, particularly if, if it's to treat somebody who otherwise is going to die soon. I mean, it just seems like there's, Situations where the protections are too severe. Am I catching that correctly?
1: I I want to share a number which is um, sad and action-inspiring. There are 505 known genetic diseases of the immune system. Your audience will have heard of one, bubble boy disease. It's where a child has no immune system, and the only way for them to survive is to live in a bubble or get a bone marrow transplant. Most recently, we've developed the ability to treat those diseases by genomic therapies, first by putting the gene back in using viruses, and then subsequently by CRISPR. There are 112,000 individuals with one of these 505 diseases of the immune system, and we know where they are. We know which which of that long list each one has. We know what genetic changes causes them. How many trials for CRISPR to treat any one of these diseases, pretty much each one of which is CRISPR treatable, are there on planet Earth right now? Zero. And you'll say to me, but Peter, how can that be? CRISPR's biggest success in the clinic has been to edit blood. A company called CRISPR Therapeutics, in partnership with a pharmaceutical giant, Vertex, is about to get approval in the United States and in Europe for a a way to use CRISPR to genetically repair blood and treat sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. Why is it the case that this exact technology is not just repurposed to start to vigorously treat that giant global community of people with inborn errors of immunity? So my piece in the New York Times is about that. And there are, at a high level, three challenges. The first is that the current regulatory system to test for safety and efficacy, medicines of this type, has been built to do so for diseases that affect many people. And so it makes commercial sense for for-profit entities to invest years and millions of dollars in performing such tests because they will recoup the, exp- the spend. You know, they charge Approved medicines in the space are two to three million per patient. And that's fine, I suppose. You know, if you spend 10 years and $2 billion building that thing, I guess you have a right to charge a lot of money for it. But what do you do when there are 10 patients? The for profit sector is not interested by definition. I mean, it, how much, if under the current system it takes you, I don't know, five years and $10 million to do this, but there are only 10 patients? I mean, Why why would you spend all that time doing this when there are only a, a, a few number of human beings who will benefit? So the regulatory reform that I am advocating, frankly, would take a very clear and careful look at which of the current regulations are relevant and essential to maintain, and which can be upgraded. I don't want to say removed, I'm not advocating for less regulation, I'm advocating for uh, regulatory reform that would align the way we de-risk these therapies with, frankly, the number of patients who are there and with the unmet medical need. You know, I, I'm deeply affected by the story of a, of a child um, uh, who was born in Israel and was fine until age three months and then developed all these devastating infections and, like, literally the world's best physicians tried to save his life for seven months and he died. And the reason I bring this up is the, the scientific publication about this child's tragic life lists the genetic mutation that killed him. I, as a gene editor, can design a working medicine for that mutation and test it in three months. So had there been a regulatory climate that would have allowed me to do that, and had there been the infrastructure at that hospital to build that cure, we would have been able to save that child.
0: You know, I, I think there's a precedent for allowing experimental therapies when the standard therapy uh, doesn't work and the stakes are very high and the, the mortality is very soon. Because once again, we're not, not talking about changing a person's uh, germ cells, we're talking about their somatic cells. So even if there's some risk to, the, to that person's overall health, I mean, the the known danger of not acting is so enormous that it seems like it would be a clear clear cut decision.
1: I agree with you we have to be also thinking about a future where we build a system where we can seriously take on the challenge of CRISPR-treatable rare disease. And I think that will require, frankly, building a fundamental, and that I'm gonna touch on challenge number two, which is a key role for the public sector. Given that it's fairly clear that today, you know, the, the, the hundreds of genetic diseases that are too rare will not be the focus of the for-profit sector, which is very healthy and vibrant and building CRISPR cures for let's say sickle cell disease or cancer. I think we need a fundamentally new way to partner the for-profit and non-profit and federal sector and state sector to really develop new ways to build such cures and deliver them. We have an example like that in the state of California where the taxpayers approved an entire institution called the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine which has supported California academic and nonprofit investigators in designing and delivering such therapies. I am really hopeful that this becomes a federal initiative. I don't think that California should stand alone. I also think that this is a tremendous opportunity for the for profit sector to support it. Why? Because everything we learn from treating rare disease can then be used by the for profit sector to treat much larger patient populations with um, uh, common diseases. The, and the, the way this mutual reinforcement will work, is imagine a rare disease, let's say, of the lungs. Really rare, but severe. And the non-for-profit academic sector uh, is supported by industry and the federal and state systems to build a treatment for that. Well, guess what? When that works, there's things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is really, really hard to treat and has a genetic component. So the for-profit sector should then take everything that we've learned about how to put CRISPR in the lungs. But instead of treating rare disease number 11, of of which there are 23 people on Earth, start to treat COPD, for which there are hundreds of thousands of people. So I think in this case, there will be a beautiful halo effect, rising tide lifts all boats, if you you will, where therapy development for rare conditions will uh, ultimately benefit the development of therapy for uh, common disease. And three, I think we really need to be nimble to innovation. You know, if you had told me in 2011, the year before Jennifer Doudna's Nobel Prize winning paper, and by then I'd spent 10 years working on gene editing, the earlier generations, and you said, Theodore, you know what? 10 years from now, the way we're going to be doing gene editing is not using any of your tools, but there is this thing in bacteria called CRISPR, and it's a tiny protein that's 2 billion years old, and it uses a tiny piece of RNA to find the gene of interest, and uh, you can do anything with that, and it's easy to program it to get a gene two and gene three and as many genes as you want. If you had told me all of that a year before Jennifer's paper came out, I'd say, how about some herbal tea? (laughs) Deep, deep breath. I would have believed you. So where I'm going with this is we should be nimble to innovation. Mother nature harbors extraordinary tools and human creativity is exceptional. And so I realize I'm sort of sitting here at one of the world's greatest research universities, slightly waving my blue and gold flag here, but I think we have to build a world where academic innovation that emerges out of curiosity, such as gave us the recombinant DNA revolution or such as gave us the uh, the CRISPR revolution, has a way to get to the clinic. And this is called translational research. And I think that research universities, such as where we are, and uh, partnered with superb teaching hospitals such as uh, UCSF are just a great venue to accelerate the development of uh, CRISPR cures.
0: So I'm wondering if in the last few minutes we could speak to people's fears about uh, CRISPR. And, you know, I think there's maybe an overall fear of scientists playing God, so to speak. And then you have the more specific fears of various nightmare possibilities bioweapons that change uh, the, the the germ cells of a population and runs rampant uh, this uh, possibility of eugenics some some nefarious scientist in some i don't know north korea let's say you know decides to create a super race i mean these kind of things I, I, as we've spoken before there are organizations that scientists can uh, agree to not work on germ cells but I'm wondering, is there any way to protect against some of these other nightmare scenarios which would be outside of these organizations? There could be some rogue scientist somewhere.
1: First of all, I just really wanna acknowledge the fact that being mindful of that is essential. I think if we don't think about these things and build countermeasures preemptively, I think we would be not doing our job. And I don't have to go far. I can tell you right now how to use CRISPR to make a pain-free soldier. I think it would be devastatingly unethical because um, the way we would do this is by mimicking a genetic condition that rare individuals have called congenital insensitivity to pain. It's devastating. It is devastating. Do I imagine a rogue scenario where this is used to weaponize soldiers before going into battle? It's horrific. Is that technically feasible? It is. You don't need to invent anything that currently doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, and there are other, other changes too. You could make a soldier who needs half as much sleep as normal, who has twice the uh, musculature as normal.
1: The gene for that was discovered at UCSF. There are people who can sleep for four hours with no adverse effects. So what, where are we going? Is, is this our future? Is this oldest Huxley's worst imaginable nightmare, sort of brave new world 2025? Look, it's impossible to prevent everyone on the planet from doing something nefarious and evil with CRISPR. There will be people doing this. There are probably people doing this right now. The issue is the size of the effort and what happens when these efforts are quote unquote outed. I think as the global outroar over the alleged germline editing in 2019 shows, we are pretty good at rising as a species and saying, no, this is not a line that can be crossed. So I think rather than be passively concerned about these illegitimate scenarios, we simply must continue to speak loudly and clearly what is allowed and what is not, and put in place measures that prevent in every way that we know how the scaling and the broad deployment of these doomsday
0: scenarios. So, so in other words, in other words, the genie is out of the bottle, <laughs> you know, and the genie will do some mostly good things. Yep. But you know, sometimes, some sometimes a nefarious person might get a hold of that uh, Aladdin's lamp. But here's my hope.
1: So my hope is by the time that somebody nefarious somewhere declares to the world that look, I have improved this baby by editing. It, in embryo level, it's going to be, quote unquote, smarter. It's going to have a health span of 97 years and all of that nonsense that that crowd likes to spew forward, I'm hopeful that by then there will be dozens of approved medicines that treat devastating disease, both genetic and common like cancer. I'm hopeful that there will be a, a global framework for rapid development and deployment of CRISPR to treat newly diagnosed severe genetic disorders. I'm hopeful that there will be crops that farmers in the developing world grow to sustain their livelihood. In other words, I'm hopeful that by then the net positive footprint of CRISPR on the planet will be so formidable that we will be able to shine the the most unfavorable light imaginable on these rogue actors and say, well, you're welcome to be a cinematic villain in your little corner of your delusional universe. But the rest of the world has moved on to make it a better place by putting CRISPR to ethical and uh, safe and constructive use.
0: Well, that's a, I think that's a wonderful uh, point to end on. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Fyodor Urnov, a uh, leading uh, researcher in the field of genome editing, uh, a professor at UC Berkeley, uh, and the director of the Center for uh, Translational Genomics at the University's Innovative Genomics Institute. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In.
1: I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for inspiring me to think about how I can answer some of these tough questions you asked.
0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.